and welcome. You're listening to the Genesis Podcast, the official podcast of the Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. It is our goal to inspire one another to change the world by effectively living in the way of Jesus. Check out our website, thegenesisstory.com. There, you can learn more about us, where and when we meet, ways to invest and support, but most importantly, how to get connected. Thank you for spending time with us today. Good morning. Good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning with us. Again, welcome to all those who are joining online. Look forward to our time together and our time afterwards. I want to remind those of you who are watching online that there is a whole other, I don't know what you would even call it, there's a whole other part of what takes place in Genesis that happens after I finish my talk. And it's where we have a talk together. And it's my favorite part of the morning. It's where I think the most learning takes place is with the sharing is accomplished. In Corinthians, it talks about when you get together, each one of you has a song, each one of you has a word, has, a, uh, has something to contribute. And that's where the richness of community takes place is when everyone contributes. And so I share that because I, if you're contemplating whether you should come or not, that's the reason you would want to, I think. Um, well, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but that's one of the main ones. So hopefully that will be something that you will participate in with us, because that's where we get to know one another and enjoy each other's knowledge and experiences together. But let's pause and let's pray. Oh, and before we start again, thank you to everyone who donates and contributes to Genesis. You know, people leave envelopes in the mailbox, people tithe online, so many ways people are giving, and we are here because of your contribution, and we want to acknowledge it and say thank you for that. Now let's pause, let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, once again, we are grateful to be able to gather together, and we do it in the name of Jesus, desiring to be conformed into the image of Christ. And it's our prayer this morning that through the song, through the words shared, and through the conversation afterwards, that that would take place. Grateful for an opportunity like this, Lord, may our hearts be open to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been an interesting week. A lot of fun things happening. Yesterday was my granddaughter's birthday party. One years old, she turns one. I think Tuesday or Wednesday. Tuesday. She actually turns one. We had a party for her, and that was just a lot of fun. Um, and throughout this week, I've been wondering, what am I going to talk about? And so I chose to continue with the idea of words or these ideas that are in Scripture today. I want to talk about the cross. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you about branding, a first birthday, of course, graffiti, and a hero's journey. 
I remember when I, I first became a Christian and follower of Jesus. I remember going to school. It was a school library. I had to go to register or something for classes. Uh, and I remember seeing uh, a girl who was there, and she had uh, a necklace and had a cross on it. And I noticed the cross. I actually noticed the girl first, but then I noticed the cross. And I thought, you know, oh, she must be a Christian. She's wearing a cross. And it didn't dawn on me. You had to have known me back in that time. I was pretty oblivious to a lot of things through, well, there's a lot of reasons why. But I just assumed that she had a cross, so she must be a Christian. And I, I remember asking her something about, oh, are you a Christian? And we're just like, what? And I'm like, well, you have a cross. And she goes, no, it's just something that someone gave me, right? And I was like, oh, okay. I guess that conversation didn't go the way I wanted. I guess, I guess we're not going to go out then. I don't know. But branding is something that people pay millions and millions of dollars so that their logo, their name becomes something that's common. If you see golden arches, you know it's McDonald's. If you see a swoosh, you know it's Nike or, or three lines, it's Adidas. And so all these brands are out there so that people will understand what it is that they're conveying, what it is they're selling. But nothing is as iconic as the cross. You find crosses on church buildings and you find them on celebrity skin as they tattoo them. And it's something that is known throughout the world and throughout, gosh, centuries. The idea of the cross is something that is prominent, but why did Jesus die on the cross? Now, the answer that most of us probably have popped in our mind is he died for our sins, but what does that all mean? At my granddaughter's birthday yesterday, I was talking with my nephew, and we started talking about atonement, as one does at a first birthday party. And so I, I was talking to him about some philosophy. We were talking about Nietzsche, and he's a brilliant young man. And the idea of atonement came up. It was like, what does the atonement mean? Why did Jesus die on the cross? And in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how the high priest had to make sacrifices over and over and over again for the sins of the people. And why did people offer sacrifices? Well, they did it for forgiveness. They did it to receive blessings. They, they did it to offer peace between them and God or the gods that they believed in. And entire civilizations for thousands of years enacted sacrificial rituals because they believed that this was how you maintained a peaceful relationship with the gods, the forces, with the deities that controlled your fate. We need rain, so let's offer a sacrifice to the rain god. We need more sun. We want the child to be born healthy. All these offerings were to appease the god and show them that you care. And that's how it worked. Offer something, show that you're serious, 
make amends, find favor, and then hope that it's enough to get what you need. And in Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 26, it says, Otherwise he, the high priest, would have had to offer many times since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared, being Jesus the high priest, one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when the writer of Hebrews insists that Jesus was the last sacrifice ever needed, this was an incredible idea. To make the claim in those days was stunning. It was unprecedented. Whole culture centered around the sacrificial system, keeping the gods pleased. And that's obviously something that it was a business. We saw in the temple, they would sell the right offering to make money. And so there's a whole industry, a whole economy around the sacrificial system. Not to mention the anxiety that produces. You never know if you fully please the gods or not. Was my sacrifice enough? Maybe we should have got the better lamb or the better dove or had two instead of one. Maybe we should have done more to appease God than what we did. And now the writer is announcing that those days are over because of Jesus dying on the cross. Done away. Irrelevant. The psychological impact that would have is amazing. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It's taken care of. You're good. If you ever owed someone something and you wonder how much do I still owe you? No, you're good. Don't worry about it. It's taken care of. Imagine God saying that. Oh, you got a problem? It's good. It's taken care of. No more anxiety, no more worry, no more stress, no more wondering if the gods were pleased with you or ready to strike you down. Rob Bell says in his book, Love Wins, there was no more need for any of that sacrifice because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that thoroughly pleased the only God who ever mattered. It's done. But wait, there's more. More than satisfying the need for sacrifice ever again. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, Jesus, in verse 20, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, to reconcile was something that was done in relationships. If you had something against somebody, somebody owed you something, you have hard feelings about something, to reconcile was to bring the two of these things back together, to make peace between them and bring them together. And so... Did Jesus die to end the sacrificial system or to reconcile all things? But wait, there's more. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a very popular verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, justified is a legal term. Paul says that Jesus' death on the cross paid our debt so that we could go free. So again, we have to ask, 
When Jesus died on the cross, was it to end sacrifices? Was it to reconcile all things? Or was it the price paid to free guilty sinners? But then in 2 Timothy and 1 John 5, it says that Jesus has overcome death by bringing victory. And that overcoming, it overcomes the world. But overcoming and victory and conquering, those are military terms. So when Jesus died, did he die to end sacrifices, to reconcile all things, a price paid for guilty sinners, or a battle that has been won? But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And the word redemption is a business term. It's a financial word that means to give something value. You buy something back, you redeem it. It says the riches of his grace. That's why redemption, the riches of his grace, because it's talking in the financial language. And so back to the question, what happened on the cross? Is it about the end of the sacrificial system or a broken relationship that's been reconciled or a guilty defendant who's been set free or a battle that has been won or the redeeming of something that was lost? And then the answer would be yes. And so the early church used all these metaphors to try to express the meaning of Jesus dying on the cross. And so when we try to make it just one thing, oh, it's just, you know, the, the penal substitution. It's just this. You are missing the point. All these metaphors are to help people connect to something that is happening, where they are at and what they are going through. See, I don't know about you, but I haven't sacrificed anything to God in a long time. Like physically, I haven't killed any animals, done any kind of slitting of throats or anything. It's been a while. How about you, right? Been a while. I hope, right? I hope you guys have not gone there. See, that's not our culture. That's not our language. Those things don't mean anything to us. So that metaphor has a limited connection to us. But some of these others, maybe more so. And it's important to see that we don't want to minimize what has happened by narrowing the idea of what it means. So why did Jesus die? Well, there's lots of reasons. But then the question comes up, but why the cross? Because if Jesus just had to die, then he just died in his sleep. Hey, Jesus died for our sins. Good. When did he die? Oh, last night in his sleep. Can he have died in a battle or something? Why the cross? Why is that important? Why is that so meaningful to this narrative that we see throughout the New Testament. In the first century, the idea of the cross had a different meaning than it does today. No one would have tattooed a cross on their body in the first century. They started doing that around the 1500s, by the way. Because the cross 
and the symbol of crucifixion was profane. It was gruesome. It became a kind of a curse word. They would find inscriptions on Pompeian walls that would read, translated, go crucify yourself, which is kind of like the go yourself. Because that's the attitude and feeling that you got from crucifixion. So this isn't something that is thought of in any nice way or in a way that would be something you would want to connect yourself to. Romans were not the first people to hang criminals on the cross for punishment and execution, but they sure perfected it. They had a way of manipulating this for their advantage. And so if Rome was going to spend money and manpower on crucifying someone, they wanted to send a message. And so most likely they would do it in very public ways. You guys are familiar maybe with Spartacus and the uprising of the, all the slaves and they crucified like 600 of the people up and down a main highway so that everyone could see it. And most likely when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't just those three that were crucified. Most likely there was a lot of people crucified on that day because it was their way of making an example and displaying these kinds of things. They demanded order and cooperation, conformity to the Roman control. And the crucified, whether Jesus of Nazareth or Spartacus, were Rome's bloody stamp of rejection. More than just ending their existence, it was ending their honor and their dignity, which meant everything. It was an honor culture, and if your honor was stripped away and your dignity, it was a shame. And so no one in their right mind would want to go to a place where they would be crucified. Of course not just for the obvious reasons, but even more so the shame that they bring to them and their family. And given that societal standing and status that were so important, you could easily see how anyone would want to avoid this at all costs. If I was a thief, if I was something, anything but crucified. And crucifixion was for the more important statements that Rome wanted to make. So if you're a common criminal, they might behead you, they might strangle you, that was another way they killed people, and it seems strange to us. But crucifixion was the way they made a point because of the humility that was involved with it. And this idea of humility is at the core of the cross. It is... The point that is being made in the identification of Jesus and crucifixion is the humility that is taking place. Now, most of us are familiar with a, a hero's journey. It, it takes place in most of the stories that we encounter, right? Every movie that is just about made, it starts off with our hero who's unaware. They're just living their lives like Neo in the Matrix or Luke Skywalker, you know, on some forbidden planet or Cinderella with her wicked stepmother. 
right? There's just this person who's there, and they're just this humble person. There's nothing special about them. But then they get this call to adventure, the call to a, a battle somewhere, the call to engage in something that is bigger than them. And then there's going to be the, the weakness that they encounter, the humiliation that they have to go through. They're going to have to run out of the castle at midnight, but somehow the golden slipper or the glass slipper stays okay, right? The other clothes, they all turn into rags, but the slipper, it's okay. But then there is the, okay, everything comes back and they have a happy ever after ending. That's kind of the narrative. So many of the movies you see, whether it be Harry Potter, whether it be Star Wars, whether it be Lord of the Rings, you name it, they all have this kind of plot that takes place throughout that. But the story of the cross is so countercultural, it's ridiculous. It is not the normal hero's journey. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Verse 23 continues, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We preach something that is used like a curse word. And that seems ridiculous. It, it's the weak who are crucified. It's those who are devalued who are crucified. It's those who are powerless who are crucified, they have their dignity taken, their honor destroyed, as well as their lives. And somehow the wisdom and strength of God is found in this humility. And the cross was the ultimate form of humility. And that's where the hero shows up. The cross of Christ is a paradox that shakes everything we thought we knew about power, about wisdom, about winning, about life itself. It forces us to a place that is dark. And it's a mistake to think that Jesus came to die so that we could live. It's a lot deeper than that. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. See, Jesus didn't die so we could live. Jesus died so we could carry his death with us. And by carrying his death with us, we then also carry the new life he brings with us. It's the type of life that Jesus demonstrated where he would say, if I, your Lord, wash your feet, then you need to do this as well. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you become the servant of all. The first will be last. The last will be first. But unfortunately, the conversation has been hijacked by people, church leadership. So the idea of serving is you serve the church now. Right? You serve us now. You serve the the new 
empire of whatever it is that they're trying to do. And it happens a lot where people resist this idea, well, you know, I have to serve, well, who do I serve? Well, you serve God. How do I serve God? Well, you serve the church. You come here and you give your time, you give your money, and then you serve the church, and that's your service to God. But it really is about serving one another. It's about caring for each other in life, in the things of life. And so Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, when they were partaking of the Lord's Supper together, he rebuked them because they weren't taking care of the needs of the others, and so they weren't representing Christ. You didn't see Jesus in your feast because you neglected those who had less. That's not like Jesus. And so this idea of humility is, is baked into the cross. This idea of humility is, is the road through which God is trying to maneuver humanity. But it's not a road that any of us want to go to. But it's the road that many of us find ourselves in. There's a book out called... I'll Show Myself Out by Jesse Klein. Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. Now, if you're looking for a, a nice book about being a mother, this isn't the book for you, okay? This isn't a, a Christian book that's going to you know, lead you to some place. This is an honest book that, I don't know if I can share who told me about it, but I'll ask them later. But it, it, I want to read to you an excerpt in this because I find that this is a, a beautiful example of this idea of humility, but power. The idea of torment, but love. So she says in her book, and if you knew that your mother's journey was intrinsically a hero's journey, if that was in any way an established narrative in our culture, you'd have to accept that this memory of womb-like safety, this foundation upon which so much of our identity is built, was often just an illusion. You'd have to realize that while you were blessed out of your mother's lap, blissed out on your mother's lap, one of those epic battles the kind that envelops heroes as they fight their way out of a ring of fire was raging just above your head. No one wants to believe that in the moments you felt the most peaceful, the woman cradling you so softly was shielding you from a sword that she herself was holding. Every mother you know is in the fight with herself, in this fight with herself. The sword that hangs over you is a sword of exhaustion, of frustration, of patience run dry, of her bladder practically exploding like a water balloon as she enters her third hour of sitting in a chair trying to get you to fall asleep. It's the sword of missing a meal because there wasn't time to eat while she was packing a diaper bag with all the endless amount of stuff you needed to go to the park. The sword of sneaking one bite of string cheese while sitting on the edge of a damp sandbox. The sword of indignation at how little she feels like a human when she so often has to look and behave like an animal. And mostly, and this is the spikiest truth, 
is a sort of rage. The rage and shock of how completely she must annihilate herself to keep her child alive. Ultimately, the hope of impossible delight almost always wins out of the impossible torment. I know this because here I am, alive, writing this, and here you are, alive, reading it. Which means our mothers did what heroes do. They kept us all alive to tell our own tale one day. I love how she captures and illustrates the paradox in this picture. The safest place for that child is also where the most tumultuous place is happening within that mother's heart. And they're happening in the same place. One of the reasons I'm a Christian and call myself that is, is because of the cross. It is the place in recognition where what is the most humiliating is also the most glorious. It is where the pain that is seen is also the place where healing can be found. But that healing and repair comes through the crucible. It's a place of recognition that things are broken and needing repair, but that the repair is costly. It's where we see that the way forward is not by force and power, but by death and resurrection. It's the way that God brings change to the human soul, not by coercion, but by humble displays of love through servitude. When Paul was dealing with the church in Corinth and the struggles that they had, where some were saying, oh, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul. This is my hero. This is my hero. This is the person I follow. Paul was like, don't even put me in to that category. And instead, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Paul is coming to them and saying, I came in this. You need to go and crucify yourself because who do you think you are acting this way, making people this? Don't you understand what this is about? It takes place here. In the lowest places we imagine, that's where the life is being born. In the hardship is where we find healing. The cross is a contradiction where we understand that God is alive because Jesus died and gives new life. The cross makes us rethink the hero's journey, rethink power, rethink love, we think the goal and purpose of life. This isn't about winning. 
This is about being alive. And the only way you find this life is through this kind of death. And it's so contradictory. But it's like the contradiction of the mother being there, loving the child, even though she's in desperation. It's the life picture that I think is most true. It's the one that makes the most sense. And it's the one that can bring about the biggest change. So why did Jesus die on a cross? Because it was the best way to convey what the love of God looks like and how it takes place. Let's pray. Lord God, I have difficulty understanding the cross crucifixion and its importance. It always seems to be put into a narrative I've been fed over and over again that's so limited. And my prayer this morning is that the idea of the cross would capture our imaginations and explode within us the ability to see you outside of the constraints of maybe the religious narrative we've been given. Be able to push into how far this reaches into the human soul. The importance of that crucible in life, in our life. How difficult it is and how important it is. And may the example of Christ be our example that he lives not just so that we can live, but so that we can live like him into the new life that is given by way of the cross. Thank you again for your example. May it take root in our hearts and our lives and produce life for your honor. Jesus May we find the beauty of God and the brutality of the cross, that we have made peace with God, that we are justified, that we are reconciled to all things, that we have victory, and what that looks like as we see Jesus. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week, and thank you guys. Look forward to our conversation together. God bless You've been listening to the official podcast of Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. If you've been encouraged, found hope, been challenged by what you've heard, we'd like to ask you to help spread the word by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. You can also help support our podcast by visiting us at thegenesisstory.com. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.